People of God, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come with mixed feelings, don't we? Because it is a sign and a seal of our salvation that we are saved from our sin and we are reconciled to God. And so there is great joy in that, people of God, isn't there? But it is also meant to be a time of mourning. It's meant to be a time of grieving. And it is proper to the Lord's Supper to come in that frame. We come to the table with a sense of mourning over our sin. Not, listen to this carefully, not that our sin condemns us if we are in Christ. We don't come mourning because of that. Because there is no condemnation for the believer. Never. Instead, our mourning is because our sin didn't condemn us, but it condemned Jesus Christ on the cross. I must mourn that the blessed God-man was pierced for my transgressions. I come to the supper mourning the agony that my iniquities caused my innocent and glorious Lord. That he who knew no sin became sin for me. That I might become the righteousness of God in him. And that it was my sin truly that pierced him on that day. My sin, not his sin. For he is wholly innocent, but I am wholly guilty. Yet in my place, bearing my guilt, my Savior bled and suffered. And if you are a believer, your heart must be affected by that. And you will mourn over it. And I want to remind you, and we're going to talk about this, especially in the midst of a therapeutic culture. That mourning is healthy, friend. It is designed to be there for it makes you consider how heinous sin truly is. And the great price that your Savior paid for it. And such a meditation, friend, will not only bring glory to Christ. But it will be a great and tremendous deterrent to future sins. It really will. And so it is proper to bring that mourning to the table. When you see the broken body and the poured out blood of your Savior. And that through such spirit wrought mourning. He will give you the grace to find sin heinous. For it caused your Savior to bleed. And so with that, to introduce our theme this morning as we prepare to come to the table, we're going to consider our text under three simple headings on your outline. First is the pierced. Who is it that was pierced? And I don't mean, oh, we don't just say Jesus Christ, but we must know who this glorious person is that was pierced. And second, the perpetrators. Who is it that put Christ on the cross? And third, blessedly, we see the purification The purification that comes from that fountain that is opened up for sin and uncleanness when our Savior was pierced. So first, the pierced. And I've already said, what really makes this text so remarkable is when you consider the identity and the glory of the one who is pierced. Verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. 
Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, who is speaking here? Is it the prophet Zechariah? No. Who is the me in the text? It is Jehovah. It is Jehovah. Our New King James capitalizes the me to communicate it as an interpretive help for you. But I'll just simply refer you back to verse 1 if you've got your Bible open and you will see that they are correct, that Jehovah speaks. He says in verse 1, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. This is his introduction to who is speaking in this text. It is Jehovah. And look at what it is that he says. He validates who he is by telling you the works that only he can do. He says, the same one who says, look on me who you pierced, says he is the one who stretches out the heavens. He lays out the foundation of the earth and he forms the spirit of man. This can only be God Almighty, friends. He who is high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Cry the seraphim as the temple shook. It's the same one who said to Moses. My name is that I am that I am. I have no end and I have no beginning. I am self-existent and always shall be. And the difficulty of this text is understanding how that same God says that he has been pierced by his creatures. And it's a staggering thing, really. It staggers the mind that the consuming fire of Sinai is said to be pierced. What a mysterious thing it would have been to Zacharias's original audience But yet the mystery, of course, is revealed in Jesus. It's only the incarnation that could make sense of this text. And indeed, when our Lord was pierced at the cross, the Apostle John records this in John 19. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And here it is. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Direct link here between Jesus and Jehovah. I actually had a friend once when I was in the evangelical uh, in a Bible church who said that he struggled with the Trinity greatly until he saw Zechariah 12 verse 10. And then he understood the divinity of Jesus. See, this is the son of God taking on flesh, isn't it? The second person of the Trinity taking on flesh. He took it on so that he could be pierced. So that his blood could pour out of a broken body. And why did he do it, friends? It was for our sake, or have you forgotten it? Isaiah 53, he was wounded for what? Our transgressions. He was bruised for our Iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Three times in that verse, the first person plural, our, was used, so you will never forget why he was pierced. 
Our salvation, friends, if you would just sit and look at the facts, is utterly incredible. For it comes from Jehovah pierced in the person of Jesus Christ. Jehovah pierced in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that remarkable to you? Do you recognize how astounding of a statement that is, friends? Or have you been seared to that remarkable fact? You need to recognize it if you have never recognized it before. And in Jesus, you do not just have the perfections of Jehovah's divinity. That would be enough. But you also have the perfections of a perfect man. The only perfect man. The only perfect man who'd never earned sin's wages was pierced. The only man who perfectly loved the Lord was pierced. The only perfect man who ever loved his neighbor perfectly, even you and me, was pierced. And how we say when we look at a news reporter, maybe it's our friends, and how we say how tragic it is when an innocent dies in this life. And we mourn for it, even though the truth is there is no one good, not one. Even those we deem as innocents are only relatively so, and we will find room, though, in our heart to mourn for them. But this man, Jesus, he was innocent. And should you not just mourn that fact alone, that he died, that the only child of men who was ever holy and blameless was so cruelly pierced, Even if he didn't do a thing for you, should you not find it in your heart to mourn that bare fact? Absolutely. But to recognize that he is both perfect divinity and perfect man met together in one Christ, well, that takes it to another level entirely, friends. It is to recognize that the one that we meditated on from the Song of Solomon last week, from Song of Solomon 5.16, who is altogether lovely... It's that one who was pierced. The one his bride sang of saying he is chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. This is my beloved. And he is the one that was pierced. And that the blood of this altogether lovely person was needed to cleanse you of your sin, should tell you how awful the cure for sin is. And by extension, how awful sin is as well. Friends, there is no cure for sin, but that most costly ointment of them all, the blood of God. You know, it's strange that men give so much for ointments made out of things like rhino's horns and other exotic materials, isn't it? But how little men value the most exotic ointment of them all, the blood of God. Do you value the blood of God? For that is what Christ's blood is called by Paul. Feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Acts 20 verse 28. Do you value the blood of God, people of God? Do you value the blood of Jesus Christ? For it is alone what is necessary to save you from your sins. So you have seen 
that the one who is pierced speaks and is Jehovah. And you have seen that the one who is pierced is the perfect man, innocent and holy. And that person is one person, not two. He is one Christ, one person with two natures, one who is pierced. He is of inestimable value and worth. This is the greatest person to ever walk the earth. And so that alone should tell you why there should be great mourning over his death. Even if you had no culpability in it, friends, you must mourn such a glorious person being pierced, shouldn't you? Because he is of such great value. He is of such great glory. He is of such great beauty. He is altogether lovely. And that should cause us to mourn. You have to see the value of the person of Christ before you start mourning over what was done to him. But the thing is this, friends. You and I who have faith, we do have culpability, don't we? We do have culpability. So let's consider the perpetrators of this act next. And so we must ask the question, who pierced? Who pierced this glorious Lord Jesus? We say with the creed, he was condemned under Pontius Pilate, betrayed by Judas, handed over by uh, the Jewish leaders. But our text says this, they will look on me whom they pierced. And so what you need to understand, friends, is that we are the perpetrators of this, aren't we? Those of you who have saving faith, in a real sense, the bride of Christ put her bridegroom on that cross. He was wounded once again for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And this was promised all the way back in Genesis 3, wasn't it? That when man fell in Genesis 3, we were told that Christ would be bruised because of it. Because of Adam's fall. Not his, because of our sin. The innocent suffering for the guilty is found all the way in Genesis chapter 3. And so we are the perpetrators and our text says that when we come to the realization of that, we will mourn. And it says it will be a deep mourning. Listen to what the Bible calls that mourning. He says, yes, they will mourn for him as what? As one mourns for his only son. And they will grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Did you hear how deep the mourning is supposed to be? It's as though one has lost his only son. And of course, this is God's only son. It's as though one who grieves for Jesus will grieve as for their firstborn. Have you ever known, this is a solemn thing, have you ever known someone who has lost a child? I have. And it's a grief that will crush the most stalwart of men. Do you remember the Shunammite woman who lost her only son, the son she received by divine grace? When years later he collapsed in the field, oh my head, my head. And then he died in her lap. When you heard that word, if you're like me and several others, you would have mourned for him even in that text. And do you remember his mother's grief? Elisha said to Gehazi, what? Leave her alone, for her soul is vexed within her. The death of an only child is perhaps the most solemn and most sacred form of grief you can know naturally. 
I once remember waking up from a nightmare where one of my children died in it. And I was sobbing even when I woke up, even though my child was, was still fine. It affects you to the core, even though I knew it was a nightmare. It's the sort of mourning, though, that the Bible says will come over us for what our sin has done to Jesus. That it was my sin that drove those nails into my Savior. That it was my sin that pierced his side. That it was my sin, each of which caused another blast of God's wrath upon the blessed Savior on that cross. And to mourn in that way, friends, is to have godly sorrow. Be glad, friend, for it is a marker of true repentance, unlike worldly sorrow, which never could comprehend such things. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Perhaps the best illustration of that kind of worldly sorrow is found in the courtroom. You've probably seen it. It's the sorrow that the murderer has when he is sentenced, but not before the sentencing. There's never a tear shed for the victim. There's never a a tear shed and there's no sorrow for what he has done in God's eyes. That is the grief of Esau and it is not the grief spoken of in our text. We are to mourn our sin, friends, that it has caused great sufferings to come on the Lord of glory. And because of that, there will be a certain bitterness to the Lord's Supper that some want to avoid entirely when we talk of this solemn feast. But it is there from design and it was there from the beginning. You remember the institution of the Passover, don't you? That predecessor to the Lord's Supper. God said in the institution of it in Exodus 12 verse 8, They shall eat the flesh that is of the lamb in that night, roast it with fire, And unleavened bread, and listen to this, and with bitter herbs, eat of it. With bitter herbs. And perhaps the people of God did not understand at that time why bitter herbs were part of the Passover. But it was because it represented the bitterness of their sin from which they needed salvation. The flesh of the Passover lamb was bittersweet. Because it foreshadowed our eating the flesh of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And if you have the King James translation of our text in Zechariah, it actually says, And shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The New King James used grieve. The King James uses bitterness. I think I understand why, because of how we use the word bitterness today. But the sense of the Hebrew actually incorporates both words. They will grieve bitterly. Both words from both translations give you the sense of this text. Bitterness is there in the grief. And so the spiritual man or woman... If you're here today, if you're spiritual, you perceive this about your sin when you come to the Lord's Supper and you will mourn over your sin. And some people think that to come to the Supper mourning is wrong. That if they come to the Supper mourning over their sin, they must abstain from it. But what this text is saying is that you, friend, are the person who should be here if you mourn over your sin. 
For you are mourning over what your sin has done to the Savior and what it has done to your soul and what you would be if Christ did not manifest himself to you. You must come to the supper as a mourning, repentant sinner, remembering that the price for repentance is paid by Christ as he is pierced. And you come to this as a solemn feast. And I've mentioned it before, but in our current therapeutical culture, we are trying our best to wipe out mourning in our society, especially mourning over sin, but that's another topic. We are very quick to give you a pill to change your brain chemistry if you tell someone that you mourn as if something is wrong with you. But consider some of the vignettes of those who wept in the Bible. You remember the woman who washed Christ's feet with her tears, don't you? And stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Or what about Peter when he recognized he sinned and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and what wept bitterly. There's that word again. There was nothing wrong, was there, with their weeping and their mourning? Was there anything wrong with what they did? No, it is healthy to mourn over your sin. And as Christ becomes more lovely to you, as we were exhorted last week, the greater your mourning will become in a sense. And the more heinous your sin will become in your eyes. And you will use by God's help and by God's grace that mourning to stay far, far away from sin. And that is a proper use of this morning. And what a great help it is, friends, that a meditation that I pierced Christ is to the mortification of my own sin. Is this text not a a wonderful text for illustrating that the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Be quick to repent when you mourn over sin. But on the other hand, there are hypocrites, and maybe you are here today, who have never mourned over your sin, and not once you have grieved over what sin has done to your Lord. And if that is you, the word of God says this this morning, cleanse your sins, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. James 4, 9 through 10. And maybe this is a diagnostic for you, but one of the most concerning signs of a legalist one who has not truly come to Jesus is that they have never mourned over their sin. Consider the Pharisee of Luke 18 who thought he was a believer but was not. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And did you just not hear James 4 in that? You see, the one who was justified beat his breast, didn't he? 
and he mourned. The one who was not justified is the one who had no room for mourning in his heart. So is that you, friend? Is that you? Have you never mourned over your sin? Have you never mourned over your own sin? If you've never mourned over your sin, this table of the Lord is not for you. It really isn't. This is for repentant sinners who have no righteousness of their own, who acknowledge it and look to Christ and they mourn over their sin. They're the ones who say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and plead Christ's righteousness. That is who belongs here at these seats around this table. No one else. If you're a hypocrite, friend, repent of that. It is not too late and mourn over your sin. And as you think, consider these things, I also want you to understand you yourself cannot drum up such mourning out of the flesh. This is spirit rot, which is another reason, by the way, you should be encouraged if you mourn over your sin, for it is the work of God's spirit. Because there are many here who might hear of Christ crucified and think nothing about it. Or they might say, oh yes, it is quite tragic, Pastor, that a good man died a horrifying death on that cross. They might even shed a few tears, as many have after watching that movie, The Passion of the Christ, which you should not watch, for it is a gross violation of the second commandment and does not stick to the biblical narrative either. But that aside, watching that movie, so many pagans and unbelievers shed tears and wept at the portrayal of Christ's sufferings. But did they mourn the way this text is calling them to mourn? No. Why? Because they did not see that it was their sin that pierced Jesus Christ. This mourning comes from the Holy Spirit convicting you that as Nathan came to David, thou art the man or thou art the woman who put Christ on the tree. The mourning This morning grips the heart and it says, I will repent of my sin because my Savior was pierced for my sake. And that is seen so clearly in our text in verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what? The spirit of grace and supplication. Then look at the connection here. Then, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Did you notice the order, friends? Did you see it in your Bible? What's the order? The spirit is poured out and then they will look on me whom they pierced. Then they will mourn. And so this is the Holy Spirit convicting and gripping your heart that you, by your sins, our perpetrator who put Christ on that cross. The Holy Spirit grips your heart and the Holy Spirit grips your heart to say, I will repent for my Savior was pierced for me on the tree. And you also must realize because people can take this the wrong way is that this sorrow is not the sorrow of those who despair without hope and the sorrow of those who are despondent. This is a healthy morning, as I've already said. It's not the kind that is dangerous to the soul. You mourn as one with hope, not without it. You mourn like that woman who washed Christ's feet with her tears. I suppose it's hard to explain unless you have experienced bittersweetness, the bittersweet grief in this life. Uh, This is almost a 
hard to even use this as an example. I only use it as a point of contact because it is rather shallow at the end of the day. But it's very much like the bittersweet grief that a father experiences when his daughter goes out to be married, right? The father aches with a kind of sorrow that the daughter he has raised is gone away. Yet at the same time, he is so happy that she has gone to this next phase of life and he has discharged his duty before God. That she will have her own home with her own children and her own husband. But surely when he closes the door to her bedroom, there is that sense of grief mixed with joy, isn't there? And we who know the Lord experience that kind of thing when we consider our sin. Sorrow mixed with joy. Joy because we know that he suffered for us out of love to save us. Sorrow because it is he who is altogether lovely. Sorrow because he had great misery. And so it's sorrow mixed with joy. And so we mourn because we are the perpetrators, but we do not mourn as those without hope, beloved. And praise God staggeringly, staggeringly his piercing purifies the perpetrators. Isn't that remarkable? That's our final heading, the purification. Consider Zechariah 13.1. When Christ is pierced, we hear, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. What is this fountain but Christ's blood? that cleanses the perpetrator's sins. For what do we hear in 1 John 1, 7? For the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And as they mourn, as they are gripped in the heart, as they repent of their sin and put their faith in the Savior, their sins are washed to the uttermost, washed by the blood that poured out of our Savior's side. And so at this table here, when you see the bread broken and the wine exhibited, you must perceive a body broken and a fountain of blood for the cleansing of our sin. I hope you understand, friends, when you look on the sacrament, the God that you serve. I hope you do, for his grace is beyond compare, isn't it? as you consider these marvelous things, that you serve one who was pierced so a fountain of his blood could wash away the sins of those who pierced him. That's who you serve. And I suppose it will take an eternity for my feeble mind to comprehend the goodness of God in all of that. As we prayed from Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God? Hallelujah, indeed. So how do you gain the benefits of this fountain for sinners? What does our text say? They will look on me whom they pierced. They look on me. They look on him. Is that not the same word from Isaiah 45? Look to me and be saved. Friends, you simply look to Jesus. And is that not a theme throughout the Bible? In Moses' day, the people were saved, weren't they? By looking on the bronze serpent that was lifted up. That was it. And they were saved. And so Christ said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
John 3. It is the looking at Jesus and the mourning over your sin that is the way of salvation. That is the action described here in this text to receive his benefits. You look on him by faith and that fountain is opened up for you for your sin and uncleanness. That's the gospel in Zechariah 12. Be covered by this fountain of cleansing by simply looking to the one you pierced and know that his blood covers you. And so if you have not had saving faith until now, friend, you need to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and rest on his finished work on that cross. Bring to him the sins that I trust if you have saving faith have pierced him. Trust he has paid for them all and be cleansed by his blood. But what if you say to me now, but I don't feel any remorse right now, but I still feel like coming to the Lord Jesus. Must I wait to have this morning before I come? And the answer is no. The church has soundly rejected the idea of preparationism, which is what that is. That you must have some sort of feeling in your heart before you come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now whether you mourn or not, and trust that his spirit will make you mourn in time. He will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication to make you mourn. And I want to say this because each of us has a different feeling about our mourning. Some of you might think you have not done enough mourning over your sin and you can take this message the wrong way. Do not do that. All it takes is a grief over your sin. Good. Don't compare that person at the table is crying tears uh, that look like rivers. Must I mourn like that person? The answer is no. God moves in each of you in a different way. Grieving is enough. You don't have to be a blubbery mess. And if you are a blubbery mess, praise God as well. Or else is an interesting Satan's subtlety. This text will now become works-based. The very thing it was never intended to be. That I must have a certain level of mourning. Only those who mourn at this level are the ones who are saved. But the Lord deals with each of your unique hearts in his own way. Do not measure the amplitude of your feelings. But consider the actions your heart takes. Grief, adoration for Christ. And a heartfelt desire to turn from your sins. And then you know that your mourning is real. And I want to say, if you do not come to the Lord Jesus ever, you too will mourn. But yours will be a wailing when he returns. And it will not be mixed with joy. It will be mixed with dread. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Friends, you have to mourn today in this life by coming to faith right now or else you will mourn and wail. But it won't be over Jesus crucified for your sins. Instead, you will be mourning the loss of your soul and your body in hell. You remember that the piercing of the Lord in Revelation 1-7, physically that is, was the piercing done by his enemies. 
That it was the piercing of the Roman soldiers and those who consented to it. Those who screamed with hatred, crucify him. And that's a different piercing from the one that we are talking about this morning. It is the piercing of our Lord who was done by those who said, we will not have this man to rule over us. It is the piercing of those who do not mourn when he was pierced, but were satisfied at that time. But in book of Revelation, you see a time is coming when those who were glad to see him pierced will wail because they pierced him. And if that is you, friends, if you do not mourn over your sin, you will wail when he returns. And why, friends, should you perish in that way? Why should you perish in that way? Join us who mourn over Christ crucified for taking away our sins. You can join us even at the table next time around. If you come and put your faith in Jesus, repent of your sin and trust, he provides a fountain to cleanse you from your sin. You know, no matter how black your sin is, this fountain of Christ can cleanse you from it. We saw that in uh, Paul's preaching this morning in our assurance, um, uh, uh, the word that assured us of the gospel. He says that you can be justified of all things. Even those things that couldn't be justified in the law of Moses, he said. So we say, be reconciled to God through Jesus. And speak to me after service if you've never put your faith in Christ. Well, for those of us who are invited to the supper, come with a sense of mourning over what your sins did to Jesus. How awful they were to the Savior as he was pierced for them. At the supper, you will find that fountain of blood in the cup that you will drink out of and you will mourn over your sin and what sin has done to Jesus Christ. When you look at that broken body, when the action is taken to break the bread, you will have mourning, but it will be mingled with joy because he said he underwent those grievous torments because he loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, Then a man lay down his life for his friends. Mourn over what your sin did, but rejoice when you remember your Savior did it for you. It caused him unspeakable anguish in body and soul when God's wrath smote him on that cross. So be dissuaded from your sin, friends, when you remember what your sin did to the Savior. When he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so let the supper be bittersweet. Let the supper be bittersweet as the bitterness of your sin mingles with the sweetness of Christ's compassion. And may that frame of mind at the table bring glory to God, friends, and be used to mortify your sin as you depart from this place today. By God's grace, may it be so. Amen. Please rise for prayer.